Good morning, everyone. That was lovely. It's great to see you. It's good to be here this morning. Thank you to the band for um, leading us so wonderfully as they always do. <laughs> now you're awake. Was that me? No? Tim? Is that you? Okay, cool. In case you weren't around at the start of the service or you were absent <coughs> last week, um, we, this is our brand new teaching series for the new year um, entitled Living Church. And last week, Steve kicked us off on this series with Jesus challenging words to the church in Sardis as recorded in the book of Revelation. He tells them there, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Or as the message paraphrase puts it, I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigour and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Really challenging words, aren't they? And so the question <coughs> is laid before us, how can we, as Tamworth Elim Church, ensure that we are not a church of the living dead, but a church that is alive, a living church. Alive to the purposes of God in our lives, alive to each other, and alive to the world outside of these walls. And so that's some of the questions that we're hoping to answer through this series over the coming um, weeks. So let me start with just a very quick recap from last week, because um, we began by looking sort of overall at God's design for his church. And we suggested that as the church was formed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, we can see a sort of blueprint for the church, some foundational elements, if you like, that caused the church to come alive all those years ago. So this was the... Oh, that's the end. Hold on. Can we go back to the start? And we're done. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Great to see you. Sorry, that's my fault. I must have left it on the last slide as I was testing it earlier. There we go. This is the scripture from last week. Um, and we, we said there were four things that we can see in this text here. Firstly, we see that they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. So we said they were a learning church. And the apostles are the ones that were with Jesus, that learnt from him, that heard from him, that took his teaching on board for their lives. Um, and of course, today we have Jesus' teaching in our Bibles, don't we? And we can read that for ourselves. But back then, they were reliant on those who had been with him to relay Jesus' teaching. Secondly, we read that they were devoted to fellowship. They were a caring church. And this isn't um, perhaps fellowship as we might view it, you know, a nice cup of tea and a bit of a gossip after a Sunday morning. But this was deep, compassionate fellowship. This was sacrificial love. This was selling their own possessions to make sure that everyone amongst them's um, needs were met. Thirdly, we read that they were devoted to praying and sharing the Lord's Supper. They were a worshipping church, formally and informally. They met in the temple courts, they met in people's homes, they shared meals with each other, they praised God, and the result amongst them was this extravagant joy. And finally, we read that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were an evangelizing church. They were ready with open arms to receive any and all who came to them, who discovered God for themselves. 
So these are some of the areas that we're going to want to unpick in a little bit more detail for you over the coming weeks. God's blueprint for his living church. So I wonder if I were to start this morning by asking you the question, what is the most important function of church? I wonder how you might respond. And I suppose it depends on who you are. If you're part of the welcome team, you might say that the most important function of church is to welcome people into the house of God, make them feel comfortable, make sure they've got somewhere to sit. Thank you for those who put out the extra rows this morning. If you're the worship band, you might say church is about creating a heavenly sound that leads people into the presence of God, which of course you've done for us today, so thank you. The missions team might say that that church is about sharing the gospel globally, and especially with those who are less fortunate than ourselves. The children's worker might say that church is about developing the faith of future generations, although they'd probably tell us in the form of a puppet show and a catchy song, wouldn't they? And while all of those things are needed, and indeed I think essential, I think the most important function of church is not preaching, but actually worship. Now, before the band start high-fiving each other, (laughs) I am, of course, talking about more than the sung worship that we have together on a Sunday morning, which is, as I said already, is fantastic. And it always is. Thank you. The Apostle Peter writes to the church, You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The Apostle Paul writes that the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people and he did it so we would praise and glorify him. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way, man's chief end is to worship God and enjoy him forever. This is really important stuff. We are chosen, we are made holy by Jesus in order that we might declare his praises from now until forever. But what exactly does that mean? What does that look like and how does that cause us to come alive as a church? Let's begin with what worship is. So the word worship, it comes from an old Anglo-Saxon root, meaning worth-ship. So literally to ascribe worth to something. So I might say to my wife, honey, you look like a million dollars in that dress. And she might say, we're not American, in response. Um, (laughs) Or I might say, you mean the world to me. And in doing so, I would be attributing worth to her. The writers of the Psalms were very, very good at doing this to God. Let me give you a few examples. Psalm 96 verse 4 says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. And later in verse 8, Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Psalm 99 verse 9 reads, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. And Psalm 148 verse 13, 
says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And there are many, many more that you can discover and read for yourself through Psalms. I know Gillian told me this week she's reading through Psalms um, at the start of this year, and it's a wonderful thing to do. In Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in primarily, there are actually many, many different words for worship that we translate with our one word, worship. And they all mean something slightly different. So, for example, the word sabach might be used, which means to triumphantly shout with praise. Huzzah! Or it might be the word barach, which means to bow down with reverence in adoration, to kneel. It's much more submissive. Sometimes it was about sung worship and instruments. Other times it was about raising your hands. Other times it was about doing a dance. Sometimes it was about giving testimony to the work of God in someone's life or reading a scripture aloud. Actually, one of the main words used in Hebrew is avad, which means to serve. It's not just about the things that we say, saying nice things about God in our worship, but worshipping God by the way that we live our lives, laying our lives before him. Paul had a similar idea when he was writing to the Romans, and he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. You see, real worship involves our whole lives. I think one of the best definitions of worship I've come across is from a guy called Josh Riley. He's the founder and director of worship.com. He says, worship is everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do, revealing that which we treasure and value most in life. Our worship demonstrates what we value most. And we all do it. Whether we mean to or not, we all worship. In his short book, um, Reflections on the Psalms, Christian author C.S. Lewis writes about the praise that he sees in the world. This is what he says. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favourite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favourite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Worship reveals our hearts. And you know, C.S. Lewis wrote those words, 60 years ago, and I think in that time as a society, we found many more things that we worship. Celebrities, reality TV stars, our mobile phones, television, and with the rise of social media, I think we've found new ways to praise ourselves as well, haven't we? How many likes can I get for that photo or this 
status. Worship comes naturally to us. We all praise something, but not everything is worthy of our praise. So how can we make sure that our worship is directed in the right way, that our worship is directed to God? I want to suggest to you this morning that our worship needs to have at least three aspects or three dimensions. It needs to be spiritual, it needs to be scrupulous, and it needs to be shared. Three S's, nice and easy for you to remember, I hope. So let's look at spiritual first. How do we make our worship spiritual? Well, one of the things we see quite clearly from the ministry of Jesus is this idea that the the most important thing is not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside that counts. And he was very quick, Jesus, to criticise the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees. He would call them things like whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside, they're all clean and shiny, but on the inside, it's a rotting corpse. He told them that Isaiah was speaking of them when he prophesied, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. You know, if you were to listen to them, it would seem like everything's okay, but when you scratch the surface, there is a different story. You might say they appeared alive, but were dead. And so spiritual worship is about making sure that our inner reality matches our external reality. In fact, Jesus brought this up on another occasion during a conversation he was having with a woman near a well in Samaria. It might be a familiar story to some of you found in John 4. And during the conversation, it became clear to the woman that Jesus was someone important, a prophet, she believed, and so she wanted to ask him about worship. And in fact, she asked him specifically, where? Where should we worship, Lord? Should we worship in the temple in Jerusalem? Or is it okay, or should we indeed worship on this mountain where I and my ancestors have worshipped for many, many years? And so Jesus answers her, but he doesn't quite give the answer that I think she was expecting. This is what he says. A time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So you see, for Jesus, the place wasn't important. What mattered was how, in spirit and in truth. And when he speaks here of the spirit, he isn't talking about the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about our spirit, the part of us that's hidden, that's inside, that's closed off from everyone but God. You know, on another occasion, he told the Pharisees the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, and all of our soul, all of the parts that were hidden. Because you see, for Jesus, the most important thing was not where, but that the worship that was given was genuine. We can't just say the right words and hope for the best. We need to mean what we say. And I think one of the dangers we have on a Sunday morning is that our worship becomes very familiar to us. It becomes over-practiced. It becomes just part of a routine that we have fallen into. You know, we go into autopilot. 
especially those that have been here for years and years and years. You know, I do it myself. I'll finish singing a worship song and think, oh, what was I just singing? I can't even recall. But you know, if we sing, Lord, I give you my heart, because we know the words and like the tune, but don't actually give him our heart, we are missing the point. Our worship is not genuine. We may as well be singing the Macarena. At least then we'd have some actions, you know, to wake us up a bit. I don't think those are the actions, are they? Whatever it was. I can't remember. So I just encourage you, when you're here on a Sunday morning, to make sure that your worship is genuine. Turn off autopilot and turn your attention on to God. That's how we worship in spirit. But what about truth? Well, it's very, very difficult to worship something that we know nothing about, isn't it? People have tried. When Paul was traveling through Greece, he came across an altar that was inscribed to an unknown God, just in case they'd missed any gods out. They thought they'd better put up an extra one in case there was someone they'd forgotten. And Paul, being Paul, used it as a springboard to talk to the Greeks about his God. He said, let me tell you about that God, the unknown God, and then you'll know who it is that you're worshipping. But we don't worship in ignorance because we know our God. He has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. We don't worship in ignorance. We worship in truth. We respond to the revelation of Christ given to us in the scriptures. Whether that's through listening to a sermon or studying together in a life group or your own personal studies um, in the Bible through the week, there's nothing quite like reading the Bible and then hearing God speak to you through it. I don't know about you, but when God speaks to me through his Bible, the first thing I do is I worship. I say, thank you. Oh, God, thank you for showing me that and and helping me out with this and revealing more of yourself to me through your word. Thank you for allowing me to understand more of you. It's like the most natural thing in the world. Sometimes I think we've got Sundays the wrong way around. Maybe we need to start with a word and then we can sing praises in response to what we've just heard. Because, you know, worship isn't just emotion and feelings. It's an intellectual response to the truth that is revealed to us. So spiritual worship, it's about loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. The whole deal, the whole package. So worship isn't just spiritual, but it's also scrupulous. Now, I'll confess, I did struggle to find an S for this middle section. (laughs) until I came across the word scrupulous. But I thought, what a wonderful word. Wouldn't it be great to stand up and say scrupulous many, many times? (laughs) And at least now you'll remember it. Maybe. What was that weird word from Sunday? You see, something else I think we see quite clearly in Scripture is that there are times when God simply will not accept worship that is directed to him. I don't know if you ever think about that. It's a scary thought to think that God wouldn't be listening as we worship him. And I'm often struck by God's words to the nation of Israel through the prophet Amos when he tells them this. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your hearts. Gosh, it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Why would God not be accepting of their worship? Away with the noise of your songs and the music of your hearts. Was their worship band really that terrible? 
Actually, it wasn't that their playing and singing was out of sync, but the, the, what they were confessing in the way they were living was out of sync. If you read the next verse, it says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And if we read earlier in the chapter, we find that the people God is speaking to, they were taxing the poor. They were oppressing the innocent. They were taking bribes and they were standing in the way of justice being done in the courts. They were morally corrupt. And sure, they they sang praises and they made sacrifices to God and they had these prayer meetings, but their lives told a completely different story. So God said, enough. (laughs) Enough. I'm not going to listen anymore. What I want is justice and righteousness. Right living. I want you to clean up your lives first. That is the sort of worship that I'm interested in. Jesus picked up on this idea with his disciples later on when he said to them, if you're offering a gift to the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, first go to them and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And the difficult lesson for us I know Steve asked some difficult questions last week, but it's not going to get easier. The difficult question for us is that if our lives outside of church reflect poorly on our Creator, is He going to be listening to our worship inside church on a Sunday morning? I mentioned earlier Paul's words to the Romans when he writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... Considering all that God has done for you, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And he goes on to say, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And here's the thing. If we live our lives as God desires us to live, if we treat others well, if we love sacrificially, if we tell others about the good news, that is true worship. Because what we're doing in that moment is we're saying, God, you are worthy. What you have to say about my life matters to me. And I want to bring glory to you with my whole life. Not just in the things that I sing on a Sunday morning, but in the way that I live Monday to Friday. And how I am with my friends, how I am with my work colleagues, how I am with my family, how I am down the pub on a Friday night. I want to bring glory to you by choosing to live your way. And so our worship needs to be scrupulous. And it also needs to be shared. So this morning we've spent time together in sung worship and we've spent time together sharing communion with each other and it's been wonderful. I don't know how you feel about that. Perhaps you're someone who loves the the sung worship part of a Sunday morning. Your only issue today is that the preacher's winging on a bit and you wish you'd get off and be done. Or perhaps you're someone that maybe isn't that fussed about the kind of singing aspect. But whether you're into it or not, we need to come to the realisation that our worship together isn't about our personal level of enjoyment. I think one of the dangers we have in living in a consumeristic society is that we begin to see church as somewhere that we go to be satisfied. And we end up saying things like, ah, I didn't get a lot out of this morning or I wasn't really sure about that song choice today. But you know, our, our worship together 
It's not about consuming an experience. It's about participating in a holy moment. It's not about consuming an experience. It's about participating in a holy moment. It's about coming together as the people of God. Because that's what we are. You might remember I started this morning by quoting the Apostle Peter when he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And as we've shared communion together, we've been reminded of the sacrifice that was made for us by Jesus to set us apart and to bring us together. It is a truly remarkable thing that all of us are gathered in this place this morning from our various backgrounds and cultures and socioeconomic statuses and lives and experiences that we can all come together here week by week to share together in God's faithfulness to us. You know, it's a snapshot of heaven. It's just a little glimpse of what's to come. The writer to the Hebrews says, Let us, let us together, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as we see that day approaching. And you know, as we gather here on a Sunday morning to lift his name on high, we too are lifted. We are encouraged by his faithfulness to us and by the unity that is achieved through our worship, whether we like the songs or not. So we know what worship looks like. It's spiritual, it's Um, Sorry, we know what worship is. It reveals what we treasure and value most in life, and we know what it looks like. Spiritual, scrupulous, and shared. But I just got a final thought this morning before I finish. As I've said already, worship brings us together, but we're also individuals, aren't we? And the way in which we express our worship to God will look differently depending on who we are, and that's okay. In his book, Sacred Pathways, Christian author Gary Thomas identifies nine different ways in which we connect to and worship with God. And I want to finish with this. It's not um, an exhaustive list, and I'm sure the reality is that most of us are a mixture, but I think it might be helpful to you. If we're saying that worship is a whole life experience, it's good to understand how it is that we worship best. So see if you can recognize yourself in any of these. So the first one are naturalists, not naturists. That's something else. Naturalists. So you love God best outdoors. You like to worship in the midst of God's creation, perhaps on a long walk or climbing up a mountain. But God is revealed through the beauty and the majesty of nature. And then there's sensates. So you love God through your senses. And worship to you involves all of your senses. So it's things like art, and music, and perhaps some nice smells, or a candle, or something like that really helps you to worship and connect God. And then we have the traditionalists. So you love God through religious ritual and symbolism. You like traditions, you like church sacraments, and you worship best through repetition and rigidity and structure. Sunday mornings are great 
for you guys. And then we have the ascetics. You love God through solitude and simplicity. You worship best through prayer and quiet. You like to lock yourselves away and find God in the still and the calm. And then we have the activists. You love God through confrontation. I can think of at least two people. (laughs) Fighting for godly principles and values. Your worship is your dedication to and participation in social and evangelistic causes. (coughs) Hooray. And then we have caregivers. I think a lot of you are caregivers. You love God through serving others. You worship God by giving your time and your energy so you care for the sick and you visit the elderly and you volunteer at the winter night shelter and those sorts of things. And then we have the enthusiasts. So you love God through mystery and celebration. You like outward displays of passion and enthusiasm. Lots of jumping up and down and shouting, woo! And then we have the contemplatives. You love God through adoration. Your worship is all about deep love and intimacy with God. You've got a very active prayer life. And then finally, and I can think of a few that fit this category as well, the intellectuals. Uh, You love God with your mind. (laughs) That won't work on podcasts, will it? You love God with your mind. You love discovering new truths about your God. Your worship comes in the form of study, apologetics, and the intellectual pursuit of faith. So which one are you this morning? Like I said, it's not an exhaustive list, but if worship is a whole life response, then I think it's good for us to think about how it is that we worship best. (coughs) I wonder if the band would come back up. I think possibly the best way to finish this morning might be to spend some time in worship. What do you reckon?